0: Our God is mighty to save. Our God. He's our God, our Father, and He is mighty to save. Oh, I've heard that song uh, probably a hundred times, and man, just, just got me again today. My name is Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mosaic. I am very excited to be here with the, with you this morning because uh, what God has for us today is very beautiful. One thing that I have been thinking about this week as I've been looking through the, the passage of Scripture is this idea how we as humans typically like to uh, segregate and, and separate. We, we like to get our groups and, and look on the other groups. Uh, we, we segregate and separate by you know, your socioeconomic status, you know, how much money you make. We separate by race and gender, uh, religious views, uh, political views. We find different ways to categorize people, different ways to stereotype people. Have you ever found yourself saying, you know, there are two types of people in this world. There are those that brush your teeth twice a day and those that think it's acceptable to brush your teeth only one time a day. Have you ever, have you ever felt found yourself saying something like that? There's only two kinds of people in this world. There are dog people and there are cat people. There, there are people who like to come home and have an animal just waiting for them. And there are people that like to come home and have an animal waiting for them. Watching them while they sleep, stalking them, plotting their demise. <laughs> Neither one is better. They're just they're just different. Neither one's better, just different. You know, they're both created by God. But isn't this what we do? We, we, we categorize and then who's who's in the best group? Wh- which group is the best group? My group. It doesn't matter what the group is. It's my group. Whatever group I'm in, this is the enlightened group. This is the wise group, the smart group. And you guys over there, you need to come over uh, to my camp. Because, because I know that you're just, you're just slow right now. You need to be enlightened and jump over where I am. Whatever group it is, it doesn't matter what group it is. We look at groups that way. Now, uh, I happen to be a dog person. Yeah, I know. Yeah, hold your applause, but, but I am. I'm a dog person. Uh, I was born that way. I can't take credit for it. Uh, I grew up in a family of dog people, okay? But, but when it comes to dog people, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are real dog people and there are little dog people, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if you can tell which group I grew up in. We had big black Labradors, okay? These dogs are great, they're kind, they're sweet, they're very obedient, they're useful. My dad was a, a hunter. He was big time into hunting. He really hoped and prayed that he would have a son that he could grow up into a man and teach to hunt, but he got me. Um, but, but we had Labradors growing up, and so I was a big, big, big dog person. Now, I'll be completely honest with you. I was prejudiced against small dogs and small dog people. Um, because small dogs, they're yippy dogs. They're, I mean, there's they're yipping and barking all the time. People put clothing on them, even though God gave them natural clothing. Um, I never understood the point of that. Uh, and so I, I really did. I mean, I was prejudiced against little dogs and little dog people. Not hugely, but a little bit. Uh, and then I met uh, the woman who was to be my wife. I knew that when I got married, my wife would come with baggage. I just didn't know how small the baggage would be of what she came with. Um, it was a, a little, uh, tiny, half Yorkie, half poodle, part cat, uh, little, little rat dog named Annabelle. Now, before you say he's so mean, um, that is confirmed, I am, but Beyond that, the way that I look at the world and view the world is I say, okay, the world is this way, so I'm just going to enjoy it, right? I have been given, uh, you know, this plight in life, whatever it is, uh, you may think that's good or bad, I'm just going to enjoy it, or I could be mad about it, but I decided I'm just going to enjoy it. So, didn't like little dogs, but I realized I was going to be a little dog owner, so I'm going to make the best of it. And now, I absolutely adore Annabelle. She is so Great. And she has her little personality. It's so quirky, so unique. Uh, she's really funny. We call her the Moo. And the reason we call her the Moo is because her mother was two and a half pounds, her father was three pounds, and she's 11 pounds. So we think she may have eaten her parents or maybe, maybe rubbed out one of her brothers and sisters. I'm not really sure how that worked, but, but she's, she's big. So my, my wife is so funny. Uh, she only gets her toys that, that are little cows, uh, little squeaky cows. You know, she has her, her, her big moo and her skinny moo and her flat moo. All these different kind of moos that she plays with. Uh, but her little personality, man, she loves people. Absolutely loves people. She hates other dogs. Hates other dogs. She hates any, actually any other animal. Any other animal. Squirrels this morning, uh, she was going after a squirrel when I was taking her on a walk. She was just so mad the squirrel thought, I mean, could not believe that the squirrel thought it was okay to be in her yard. Could not believe it. Went nuts. Um, but one thing about Annabelle is Annabelle has this thing, uh, this, this disease. And I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's genetic. It's called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. See, Annabelle, she, she is, she's, I told you before, she's part cat. I don't know what, where in her genetics she got cat. But she's totally fine to be on her own. Yesterday I was uh, hanging out with her in the office as I was studying uh, for the message and I brought her into the office, and about five minutes later, she just left and went into the living room all by herself and hung out with, you know, there for, for a couple hours. She was totally fine on her own until, until I shut the door. As soon as I shut the office door, she was running up by the door. She was whining. She was pawing at it. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. So I opened it, and, but she didn't need to come in. She just wanted the door to be open. She needed the possibility to be able to hang out, to be with me. Um, and it, it makes me feel good about myself. Now, here's the thing, though. I know we treat Annabelle a lot like a human, except we don't dress her up yet. Uh, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't been uh, broken in that much. Uh, and so uh, she, she loves to be like a human and hang out with the humans on the couch and all this but when it's time to go, she's reminded she's not a human. Because the humans get to go, and she does not. And at that point, she becomes uh, one of two people. Either she becomes ankle-biter moo, where she is just all up in my ankle, just trying to jump into my skin, thinking maybe that will help her get into the car and be able to go with us. Or she realizes that, that it's, it's, there's no hope. And so she just hides. She has four or five different hiding places in our house. None of them are good. Some of them are better than others, but she hides. She really does. She hides. This morning, she hid. She ran around. She, we, have a, we have a kitchen, um, uh, like, kind of like it's on an island. And so, and so she ran around this way. The table's over here, one of her hiding spots. She ran around this way to trick us to make us think she was going this way, and then went and hid under the table. It was pretty good. I was pretty proud of her. Nonetheless, she went up. And every time we put her up, we put her into the bathroom because it's got tile floor. So if she has it on purpose, uh, we, we can clean it up much easier. Uh, so every time her ears droop, her shoulders droop, her head goes down and she just slowly slouches into her bed. I mean, it's like we're, we're punishing her for something. I, I, I don't know. And, and really, the place that we have for her is really great. Have you ever seen a bathroom that has two sinks, uh, and then in the middle has that little space where you put a chair where I guess people can put on makeup? Never have done that. Uh, but, but my wife has taken the chair out and put her bed under there. And then she's put pictures of us and Annabelle in frames <laughs> under there so she'll, she won't be alone or she'll remember us. I don't know why. But my wife is great. She's really cute in the things that she does. Uh, see, it's, it's a great spot to have, but nonetheless, Annabelle's like, oh, yeah, I'm a dog. <laughs> And then we leave. And it's hard. I mean, she pulls on your heartstrings. She she knows how to work you. Kind of looks back over her shoulder like, are you really doing this to me? Did mom put you up to this? That's kind of the way that she treats it. But it's worth it because when you come home, when you come home, she gets so absolutely excited to see you. It's like she has not seen you in weeks. It, it makes you feel so good. You open up the cage and she's like, it's good to see you. 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 To see you. And she's jumping up on you. And she's scratching at you. She's pining. She's like, pet me, pet me, pet me, pet me. Love me, love me, love me. And, and it's really fun. And, and I love that so much. My wife and I have grown to love that so much that we have in, invented this thing called a moo party. Yeah, and what a Moo party is, is when we don't have anywhere to go, we will, we will put on our shoes, and we'll grab our keys, and we'll put on our coats, and at that point she knows we're leaving. She knows we're headed out, and then we'll put her up in her little, in her little cage, and she'll, so sad, really, really dad, right in front of the mom, you know, and and then we'll we'll walk out the door. And they'll come back in and we'll yell, Moo party! And then we celebrate and we have this dance and a song. And we go, Moo party, Moo party. Jump up, jump up and Moo party. Moo party, Moo party. Jump up, jump up and Moo party. And it's so exciting. She gets so excited. And I think the thing that is so interesting about that is just Five seconds earlier, she was completely distraught that she was a dog. That she was separated from the humans. She couldn't hang out with the humans. She couldn't go with the humans. And then all of a sudden, five seconds later, nothing has really changed. We never actually left. She's all excited. And the thing that she has taught me recently through this is that life is about perspective. Right? Nothing had really changed. We were still in the house. Uh, in fact, she didn't even get out of the bathroom. We, we went into the bathroom to get her. Nothing had changed except her perspective. Before, she was a dog, and it was, it was so horrible. And then she's like, no, I'm a human! I'm a human! I made it! It's so good! Life is good! And so often, I don't live life like that. I don't live out of a perspective of gratitude. Of being thankful I'm a typical American uh, who, who looks at things with a spirit of entitlement and superiority. And my group is better than your group. And I worked really hard to get the things that, that I've gotten. And, and I've got these gifts, these talents, and, and you, deserve, you deserve everything that you have. In fact, you deserve more than you have. And I get frustrated when I don't get the things that I want. And I get mad when I'm stuck in traffic or when I'm stuck behind some car that doesn't need to get somewhere in a hurry. And I get frustrated with people. Because I'm entitled to better. I'm entitled to more. Rather than living out of a spirit of gratitude. And this is not new. I mean, this is a basic human problem that went back, I mean, years and years. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, and this kind of thing was going on. Paul, uh, he, he was hanging out with Barnabas. They were planting churches in this area of Galatia. And in Galatia, uh, there were a number of different cities where they planted churches, where they discipled men and women into maturity in Christ and planted these churches. And then they left. And when they left... Some people came in, some Jewish people came in. They might have been Jewish Christians, maybe not, but they came in and they began teaching them a different gospel. Paul had said that you don't need to become Jewish to uh, get the benefits of the Jewish Messiah. You don't need to uh, become circumcised. You don't need to obey the food laws. You don't need to obey the ritual purity laws. You don't need to obey the Sabbath laws. He said you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace, and so Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to become justified by God. Which was great news until these Jewish people came in and said, no, 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 Paul's wrong. You, you, you need to be under the law. And whether that was to be justified or to uh, re- remain in God's favor or to become perfected through the law, they taught them that you need to do this. And what happened was there began to be this group of Jewish Christians that looked down upon the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians. They, they wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't eat with them because they considered them dirty. And, and if you associated with them in meals, then you would become unclean. And so they began looking down upon them. And what happened in the churches of Galatia is the body of Christ began to split. They began to Uh, categorize and stereotype and look down on one another and this broke Paul's heart and he wrote the book of Galatians to this environment and he said the gospel is of the utmost importance. We have got to get the gospel right because if you twist the gospel, if you take away from the gospel, if you add to the gospel, then you are turning from Jesus If you twist it just a little bit, if you take away from it, if you add to it, you are turning from Jesus. That's why we've got to get the gospel right. And then he unpacked the gospel for them. He said, we are not justified by works of the law. I, of all people, should know. I've worked my entire life to be justified by works of the law. And you cannot be. You're justified by faith. He talked about Abraham and the promise that God gave to him by faith. And he said, also, you're not sanctified or or made perfect, uh, being brought complete in Christ by works of the law. That is also by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's by faith. And what happened was was there began, began to be this juxtaposition between this promise given to Abraham, and the law given to Moses. See, the law had begun to to separate and divide the, the the church. And so Paul begins talking about the promise given to Abraham, the promise that was sealed by a covenant. And this, this is where we're at uh, in Galatians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, you can snatch up one of the beautiful blues. We're going to be on page 632. Or if you have one of these wonderful little tabs in your Bible, just... Flip there. Page 632, Galatians chapter 3. And Paul is continuing on, talking about the promise and the law. And he said in verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, this was a worldview shift for the Gentile Christians because in the Greek world and in the Roman world, when you made an agreement, when you made uh, some type of binding agreement with a contract, you could later on alter the contract. It was possible to alter the contract later on. But Paul said, no, I'm talking about Jewish law. In the Jewish law, when you make a blood covenant, you cannot alter it later on. And here's what happened. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 15, he made a covenant with Abraham to seal this promise. And what he said is, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a bunch of different animals and I want you to cut them in half and I want you to put them Uh, apart from each other so that the blood runs into each other and there makes this path of blood. And Abraham knew what was going on. This was a a blood covenant that happened in that day and age. This was normal. And what would typically happen is, is two parties, they would make a covenant. And then the greater of the two parties would walk through the trail of blood saying, if I break my end of the bargain, you can do this to me and worse. This was a big deal. And then the lesser of the two parties would walk through the trail of blood saying, if I break my end of the bargain, you can do this to me and worse. And what happened in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham does this, and then God comes through the middle of it saying, hey, as the greater of the two parties, if I break my end of the bargain, you can do this to me and worse. And then what is so beautiful about our God is God walked through it the second time and said, if you break your end of the bargain, you can do this to me and worse. God swore by himself that this promise would remain secure. He sealed it with a covenant by himself, by his character, his steadfast, never-changing character. So Paul says, when you make a covenant like this and it's ratified, you can't change it later on. It can't be changed later on. He goes on. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, with no S. It does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now Paul does this gigantic worldview shift for the Jewish people. See, the Jewish people thought, because I'm a biological descendant of Abraham, then then I am necessarily a part of the people of God. A part of the people who are descendants of the promise. People who will receive the promise, okay? As long as I'm a biological descendant, then that is what matters, and Paul begins to expound upon an idea that Jesus uh, said. At one point, he was talking to some Jewish people. and He said, you know, you think you have life because your father is Abraham. He said, I can, I can tell you, God could raise up these stones and make children of Abraham, make descendants of Abraham. It's not necessarily your biological descent from Abraham. And so Paul unpacks this and says, hey, remember? The promise was made to Abraham and his descendant, singular." So the promise was made to Christ. This is what I mean. Verse 17, The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. The promise, the covenant ratified by God. The law came 430 years later to Moses. And he says the law that came later can't change this covenant ratified by God. So as to make the promise void, for if the inheritance, the inheritance, what was coming by the promise, the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by the promise. So if the inheritance made by the promise, if it can come by the law, then it no longer comes by the promise, which, which obviously changes the covenant, changes the promise. So it can't be this way because the law came later. And then Paul expands upon this idea later in, in uh, verse 19. We're going to start at the second half of 19. Don't worry, we'll get back to the beginning of 19. And the way that Paul's logic works, sometimes it can be a little confusing. So verse, uh, verse 19, uh, at the very end it says, And it was put in place, the law, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. This was, this was Moses. Now an intermediary implies more than one, meaning there was, there was God giving the, the law to angels, giving it to Moses, giving it to the people. So there's a bunch of parties involved, right? You've got God who is pure and holy and you know, perfect, and then you've got angels that, that aren't quite God, and then you've got humanity and, you know, in their sin, and to more humans. Okay, so there's a bunch of people involved in this law giving process, right? He says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now the covenant, the covenant was made by God and God is one. Kind of referring back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So this was made by God by himself. And then here was made by God through angels, through Moses to the people. So Paul is saying uh, the law given through all these people is not greater than the covenant made by God, sworn by God by himself. It's not greater. So so if it's afterwards, it can't alter it. And if it's not greater, there's no way it can alter it, right? So the law, the law given to Moses cannot alter the promise made by God to Abram and his descendant, Jesus. This is making sense? We on the same page? Now, now, Paul makes an interesting statement here. Paul, remember, Paul was a big fan of the law. He had, he had spent his entire life trying to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. He knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards. Right? He was trying to live a life of righteousness because he was so passionate about the law. Now, when Jesus revealed to him all these things, I imagine his brain began to turn. And he began to ask lots of questions. And what about the law? And in in this point in Galatians, the, the Jewish people who were making their argument, I imagine they had a pretty good argument. So Paul says, I'm going to cover all my bases. And I'm going to ask the question for you that you're probably going to ask at some point. He says, so in verse 19, the beginning, why then the law? Right? If, if there was a promise made, and, and, and it's by faith, and, and the promise is what we're, we're caring about, the law came afterwards, and the law isn't as great, and it can't alter it because it's ratified by God, then what is the point of the law? Why did they even have the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was added because of transgressions. If you would like to turn to Romans, we're going we're to look at Romans real quick. Chapter 7, verse 7, but keep your finger in Galatians if you turn there, unless you're lightning quick on the Bible drills. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul expands upon this idea. He's writing a letter to the Romans and he says, What shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Now, here, the Greek phrase by no means is this phrase, meganoito. And this is the most powerful negative that Paul can say. Absolutely not. Heaven forbid. We have a lot of these phrases that we say to let people know how serious we are about this no that we're saying. And this is what Paul says. Certainly not. Absolutely not. By no means, yet. So is the law sin? No way. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, I wouldn't have known that coveting was bad, that it was wrong, that it was sinful, unless someone said, hey, you shouldn't covet. This is wrong, this is sinful. So the law showed Paul, What was sinful? Show the people of God what was sinful. Uh, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the loss, sin lies dead. So Paul's saying, I didn't know that coveting was sin. And then I found out coveting was sin. And then all I wanted to do was covet. Right? As soon as I knew what lust was, I was lusting like crazy. As soon as I knew what gossip was, I was gossiping all the more. See, I found out what was sin, and then I just wanted to do it more. In verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death, right? The law came, and it revealed the sin, and then all I wanted to do was sin more. So it produced death. What's going on here? For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Meganoito. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. Go back to Galatians. It was added because of transgressions, the law. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul says the law was given to show us what sin was, uh, to, to try and put a, a stopper to some of sin that was going on amongst God's people because God said, this is not how my people act. We don't act like the Egyptians in that land where, where you were, where they were sacrificing to pagan gods and doing all these things that are not okay. We, we act like the people of God. So the law came for that because of transgressions, but. It was also for the purpose of revealing to them that the law could not save them, that they needed something greater. Because what happened is when they found the law, all they wanted to do was covet and gossip and lust and murder and adultery, all these things, right? It revealed to them their deep, desperate need for something greater. What was greater? The promise. The promise was greater. So it pointed them to the descendant to whom the promise was made. To whom it would be fulfilled through. The law was not a bad thing. It was a good thing to point people to the fulfillment of the promise. Verse 21. Second question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Okay, the the, the law, it's not bad, and it can't alter the the promise, but is it contrary? Is it different? Has it changed anything? Certainly not. This is that phrase, meganoito. Certainly not. For if the law had been given, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law couldn't give life, could it? It just revealed the death inside, that we had death inside, that we wanted more sin, more death, more rebellion. It could not give life. It was never meant to give life. See, the promise was given to give life. The promise was about life. The law was not meant to give life, so it's not contrary. But the scripture, it imprisoned everything Under sin, the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So the law demonstrated, hey, we all need something better. We all need something greater. The the people of God with the law are not complete without the fulfillment of the promise. The people of God needed something greater just like the Gentiles needed something greater, right? It imprisoned everything under the law. Under sin so that we would look to the fulfillment of what was greater. Now, verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, right? Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It imprisoned us and it was our guardian until Christ came. Now, there's something unique that Paul is doing that Jesus said a number of times. And I want to look at it at John, John chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. It's just one verse. But verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people. And he says, you, Jewish people, you search the scriptures, the, the, the law, the Torah. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life hear what they were doing? They were taking the law and they were searching the law. They were, they were, they were trying to d- determine in the law where they could find life in the law. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus. Jesus is saying the whole book is about me. The whole book is about me. It's all pointing to me. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. The the, the Gospels talk about Jesus. The letters look back at Jesus and explain Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus says you search the law for life and, and, and implies obviously there is no life there. The life is in me. Just like Paul is saying in Galatians, the law was never meant to give life and you can search it all you want. You're not going to find life in the law. You're going to find death because sin in you is going to increase. You need something greater. You need something better. The law cannot do it. 25, but now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ In the descendant, in the one the promise was made to, in Christ, when we are in Christ, Jesus, you are all sons through faith. In Christ, in the descendant, we are all sons through faith. See, the Jewish people are sons through faith, and the Gentiles are sons through faith. We are united together in faith, in the one whom the promise was made, whom the promise was to be fulfilled in. Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. How can we become Abraham's offspring? By biological descendants? No. No by faith in the one to whom the promise was made. We are all unified in Christ, in, unified in our need for Christ, in our need for something better, and unified in the fulfillment, in the promise. So all the divisions that you've been making, and in that day and age, there were so many different divisions. Romans were better than other citizens. Jews considered them better than uh, Gentiles. Males considered them better than better than females, uh, parents better than children, uh, free people better than slaves. There were all these different dividing walls that separated and segregated. And Paul said, this is not the way it should be in the church. It's fine if it's going on out there. I understand why it's going on out there. But in the church, in the, the body of Christ, the singular body of Christ, this is not okay for we are all one in Christ. Chapter four, verse one, I mean that, that, The heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. In Jewish law, when you had children in a wealthy family, you would put them under a guardian. And although they owned everything because, you know, they were part of the family, they were basically like a slave because they couldn't choose, right? They couldn't decide. They they couldn't do things on their own. They couldn't take the inheritance They couldn't make these decisions. They were under a guardian. So practically, functionally, they were like a slave in the household because they were under a guardian, right? Paul is saying, once again, you're together. Jewish people, you function basically like a slave anyway because you're under the guardianship of the law. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, verse 3, we also... When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Paul is saying we're all in this together. We're all enslaved, either children or or, or not children. We all need something greater. We all need the promise, the fulfillment in Jesus. But we were all enslaved, right? But there's more. I love that. There's more to the story. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be adopted as sons. Right? Because the promise was made to the descendant, singular. Not necessarily biological descendants. How are we descendants of Abraham? By faith. So Jesus came under the law to redeem those under the law so that the ones under the law could receive adoption as sons. You see, they were thinking, the Jewish people were thinking, the Gentiles, they need to be adopted as sons. They need to come in and become Jewish so they can be a part of this great family of God. And Paul's saying, you're getting it wrong. We all need adoption. Jesus came under the law so that Jewish people could be adopted into the descendant, just like the Gentiles. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Could you imagine being in this church of Galatia, one of these churches, and receiving this letter and hearing what Paul is saying is that there should be no dividing walls because of the law. The law shouldn't divide. The law actually unifies us together, saying we all need something greater. And God in his love, in his grace, in his faithfulness sent Jesus to be under the law, to redeem those under the law and redeem those who are not under the law. We all need adoptions as sons. We're all descendants of the promise when we are in Christ. Not because we're biologically descendant, but because we have faith in Christ. I don't know about you, but like I said earlier, I typically act like an American. I typically act with, a, with an air of entitlement, of complacency, of superiority. I deserve this. I deserve that. It's kind of how I live my life. I can relate a lot to the, the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians saying, you need to come over here. I'm enlightened. I've got it together. I've worked really hard. You, can, you need to come over here and be a part of this group. I don't live a life of gratitude. And Paul is, is setting the playing field even and saying we all need something better. We're all, we all were slaves, right? We all were slaves. Now I think about what Paul is saying and I think about it like this. I've got a buddy. He had three biological children and decided to adopt two kiddos from Africa. So they went over to Africa, and they saw the plight that these Africans were living in, just the extreme poverty that they were living in, the, the lack of any hope for a future after being orphaned, without any way to learn, without, without any way uh, to, to have a, a step up, a leg up in life. It was so sad, without a family, without love, without acceptance, without food. And they said, we want to adopt these two kids. And so they did. They adopted them and brought them into their family. And those kids who were in Africa are now with them. And, and they have love. They have a family. They have parents. They have food They don't don't have to hide their food. They don't have to to hoard their food. They can eat all their food every meal. They don't have to save any for later because they can trust that food is going to be provided for them later on. And they've begun to see this. They've begun to get this. They've been with them for years now. When they turn 16, they're going to get to drive a car. When, When they go to college, they already have a college fund in place for them. Years after they were adopted, they got the chance to go back to Africa. And they got to see what their life should have been had the world had its say. They got to see the kids, uh, the ones that survived, and see the lives that they were living. See the poverty that they were in. The hunger that they experienced. No families, no love. Could you imagine being one of those two kiddos from Africa after going back and seeing what they should have had and coming back into the family? You think, you think they, they said, okay, we need to be extremely obedient now so that we can, we can earn the love of our parents. We need to be extremely obedient so we can maintain their favor. If we're not continually obedient, we might not get meals anymore. If we're not continually obedient, we might not get our college fund anymore. No, They already have it all. They already have love, they already have acceptance, they already have food, they already have the college fun. So when they come back, I guarantee. Their attitude is going to be an attitude of gratitude. Are you kidding me? This is what we should have had? This is what we have? I guarantee they're going to want to live in obedience, not to earn anything because they already have it, but out of the gratitude of their heart, out of the overflow of thanksgiving in their heart towards their parents, whom they love. I look at myself as an American who has it all has it all together so often. But the truth is, is that I was a slave. I was an enemy of God. I was sinful. The law had revealed to me who I was. It exposed my life. It it showed everyone and myself included who I really was. That I was a sinner. That I was broken. That I was in desperate need. And God looked on me and had compassion on me. He looked at me in my brokenness, in my rebellion. He looked at me who had made him his enemy. And he loved me. He accepted me. He adopted me into his family. He set me free. He made me a fellow heir with Jesus. Jesus, who lived the life that I was supposed to live, who died the death that I was supposed to die, the Jesus who gave it all, who deserves it all, all glory, all honor, all praise, Jesus deserves it all. God the Father made me a fellow heir with Christ. Are you kidding me? He made us in Christ fellow heirs with Jesus who did what we were supposed to do, died the death that we were supposed to die. And now we, because of his grace by faith, we get to be fellow heirs with Jesus. So do we live now to earn God's favor? To maintain his favor? No, we already have it. We we were already loved while we were sinners. God doesn't love a future better version of you. God loves you exactly the way you are right now because he loved you when you were worse. He loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were outside of Christ. And now that you are in Christ, do we live to earn it? No, we already have it. We live remembering who we were, knowing what God did and being aware of who we are now in Christ, what we have now in Christ I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was rejected and now I'm accepted. I was unrighteous, filthy, and sinful, and now in Christ, I am the righteousness of Jesus. In Christ, you are the righteousness of Christ. We were enemies and now we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. So we could go out and we could try to live in order to earn God's favor. We could try to live in order to earn His approval to maintain it. We could, we could try and live... In our superiority, in our entitlement, we could stew in our bitterness and in our anger and our frustration. We could look at life and say, we haven't been given what we deserve. We could stereotype and we could segregate, we could put up walls, we could categorize, we could look down on other people. Or, and this is going to sound really silly, but it's the best I got, or... We could wake up every day and have a moo party. We could wake up every day and remind ourselves who we were, what God did, and who we are now in Christ. And we could celebrate with all that we are out of the overflow of gratitude and thanksgiving in our heart for what God did for us. That's the gospel. Heavenly Father, God, you are unbelievably amazing. God, the way that you love us blows my mind. Thank you so much. Thank you that you love me while I was a sinner that you saved me, that you died for me, that you accepted me, that you have adopted me. God, that we are adopted sons and daughters of you, that we are fellow heirs with your son, Jesus, because of what he did. Thank you so much. Lord, I pray that we would live out of gratitude for you, for what you have done, that we would celebrate daily because we shouldn't have all that we have in you. We need you so deeply. And so we ask these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.